You know, a few years back, uh, there was a person who had been visiting our church for three or four months or so. They were coming pretty regularly. Uh, you know, not maybe every single Sunday, but they were here two to three times a month. And so they've been here for like three to four months. And, and uh, so we struck up a conversation one day in the lobby, and, and I invited this person to come by and to, to visit with me in the office. And so they came by one, one afternoon. And so we, we had the typical kind of pastoral chit-chat stuff, you know, the pastoral's, pastor's office chit-chat stuff there, just a little bit about where they lived and where they worked and kind of how they heard about Hope Chapel, just hearing a little bit about their faith story and that kind of stuff. And, and with that, I asked, was asking if they had any questions about Hope Chapel, and then we began to kind of work through a number of the things that we did as a church to help people take next steps with God. And I was really encouraging this person to feel free uh, just to, to connect in, start building some relationships, make some friends, and, and kind of become a part of Hope Chapel and start moving forward. And this person got real quiet, and then they looked at me and they said, said, you wouldn't want me to do that. I said, well, sure we would. We'd love for you to get connected and really plug in. And they said, no, you wouldn't want me to do that. Do that. I said, I, I've done some really bad things in my life. So I spent a few minutes explaining to this person that, that the marvelous thing about the grace of God is that our lives are dictated by our future and not by our past. So I laid that case out as best as I could, and, and yet the person looked at me and said, you don't understand. I've done some really bad things in my life. So after a few more minutes, the conversation came to an end. I had a chance to pray for this person, and they left. And I remember sitting in my office and looking out the window at this person as they left, and there was just a, a great sense of sadness that came over me. You know, and... And part of that is because I, as, I, as I looked at this person, they climbed in their car and began to drive away out the driveway, and within a few more weeks, this person stopped coming to Old Chapel. You know, um, it, it struck me that there are many people who kind of live in the same kind of world as this person. Not necessarily for the same, exact same kind of reasons, but in the same kind of world. And that's a world where their identity, their definition of who they are, somehow lies somewhere in their past and it's in something that's painful or hurtful or disappointing or, dis or discouraging. You know, for this person, it was a tremendous sense of guilt, if you will, and just a, an abhorrence in what they had done. And with that, that was a defining thing for them and they just couldn't get past it. For others, it might be a sense of failure Maybe there was a, just a, a moment, a strategic moment in time, and, and you, just, you just went right instead of left, and, and, and you just made the wrong decision, and, or you moved forward when you should have stopped, and there's just this tremendous sense of failure, and you just embrace that, and it's just, that's just, it becomes kind of an understanding of who you are, and you can't let it go, or maybe you're marked by certain fears or anxieties or whatever, and you kind of press all that stuff down and try to keep it under control so it won't sneak out and anybody will see it, and you're, you're dictated kind of by, by who you are. And, and we live in this place, way too many of us, where we settle deep down inside with this idea of, I am who I am, and that's just never going to change. I am who I am, and I can't change. I don't know what you might call that. I use the word shame. Now, whether it's related to our sense of family of origin or our past experiences or whatever, we, we find ourselves in a place, we look back, we see what's happened, we say, that just defines who I am and that's never going to change and I can never change. 
And I want to tell you, it's my privilege today to stand before you. It's my pleasure to stand before you this morning and to declare to you that a part of of the message of redemption, of what God has done in the world in His Son, Jesus Christ, is that you and I actually can change and change for the better. That God's grace, God's power, this power that resurrected Christ from the grave is available to us and it can change us. Now, just a moment ago, Steve read Luke's account of that very first Easter morning some 2,000 years ago. I want to pull us a little forward in the life of the church to the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have lots of Bibles underneath the chairs there in front of you. We go right underneath you, and you can grab one of those, and you can turn to page 960 in your pew Bible. Now, before I read the first 11 verses for us of Romans chapter 6, and for some of you, this will be a very familiar passage because we read it often when we do baptisms, let me just say a couple of things about what's going on in this text and so we understand it. I mean, it's always, it's always difficult to step into a conversation midstream, right? And, and Paul's been having this conversation with the church at Rome for five chapters now. It's a church he's never been to. Church, he doesn't know, really know anybody in it. He, underst- he has a longing to go to them, and he eventually gets to do so. But, but he's not been there yet. But he knows that they live in a place where if, that, that they have a chance to influence the entire world because they're at the center of the universe in the city of Rome in those moments. And, and he wants to make sure that they get the gospel right, that they really understand what it is that God has done in Jesus Christ correctly. And so he's been laying that all out for them, and he's, he's really been making this case. He's, he's been saying over and over again is that, that God has done everything that's necessary for our salvation, and that God did all of that by himself, that we don't have anything to do with it, that it's not man's effort, it's not man's work, it's not man's activity, whatever, but it's something that God has done on his own, and And he's also answered the question then that flows from that. Well, if if salvation is entirely, 100% a God act, and we just receive it as a gift, well, why did God give us the law? I mean, why did God give the Jews the law under Moses back when he was kind of calling together a nation? Why did he give them the law? Wasn't that designed to show us what to do, who we needed to be, how good we needed to become in order to be able to have a relationship with God? And Paul's saying, That may be the way that they received it, but that's not what God intended. What God used the law to do was to show even those who were faithful to God, even those who thought about God, even those who tried to live for God, even they needed a Savior. See, the the law had this role of showing, well, you know, it's not just adultery and murder and that kind of stuff that creates it, but it's all kinds of other ways in which we just do life without God. That's also sin. And so the law had this way of kind of broadening the light on what we do. And with that, sin kind of abounded because we understood that more and more things were actually sinful in the eyes of God. And, and as sin abounded, if you will, grace abounded. And that grace was eventually expressed in the person of Jesus Christ who climbed out of heaven and came into our world. 
there were those in the church who were saying, well, you know, if, if, if sin leads to more grace, and more grace is a good thing, maybe we should just sin some more. They were known as the antinomians. It's probably not a word you've used in your vocabulary recently, but it was those who were against the law. And, and what they were basically saying, well, you know, if, if, if our sin leads to more grace, maybe we should just go out and sin some more. And that's what they were doing. And Paul was writing in chapter 6 to refute that. That, that's supposed, that is actually the exact opposite of the impact that the grace of God should have when it hits our lives. And he's going to use the imagery of baptism. So let me just take a moment to talk about baptism, and then we'll dig into our, our text today, and then I'll make my points for you, and we'll all go home and eat ham or lamb, whatever you're having. So, anybody having pizza? No, see, I didn't think so. Right. You know, baptism, as he's going to refer to it here, is a, conf- is a confessional act. Now, some of you are really into the Bible stuff and the scholars you say, now, is, this, is he talking about, like, believer's baptism by water? Is he talking about baptism by the Spirit? Or is he talking about baptism by... Oh, what is he talking about? He's here talking about that, that moment in time when, as they responded to the gospel, that they heard about their need for a Savior, they recognized that they needed a Savior, and they had chosen to accept Christ as their Savior. They were baptized, and with that, they were lowered into the water. They were immersed, which is what the word baptism means. And with that, they were reflecting the fact that they had died to an old way of life. And as, just like Jesus died on the cross and was buried, as they are raised up, they are confessing to everybody, I'm living a new life. And he talks about that and its implications for us today. Let's read through these first 11 verses. I'll make a few more comments, and then I'll draw back and make some points for us. So we see the the theme that's come over for the first five verses, the first five, first five chapters. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may multiply? That's what I've just been explaining to you. That's the conversation that's been going on. He says, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So as we were lowered into the water, we, we, rec- we confessed to everyone that we've identified with Christ by our faith and we've died to an old way of life without God. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, i.e. Easter, right? As Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too keep living the way that we've always lived. So we too just remain the way we've always been. So we too can't really change. No, it says so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, in other words, we've accepted the fact that we needed a Savior, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That means we can really live this new life. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished. And so the imagery there is that before we choose to become followers of Christ by placing our faith in Him, it's like sin is leading us around on a leash and we have no choice. We are enslaved to sin. It's our master and we have no choice. And most of the time, when you and I think about sin, we, we think about the stuff, it's the kind of stuff Aaron Hernandez does, right? Kill people, shoot people in the eye, cheat on your fiance. We usually think about sin like that. The most common sin in the Scripture is self-sufficiency. Doing life without God. That's sin. 
Okay? He said, we've, we've died to an old way of life, and, 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 and with that sin's dominion, its control over us is gone. He says, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, no longer dies, death no longer rules over him. For in that he died, he died to sin once for all, but in that he lives, he lives to God. So you too should consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. A new person in relationship to Jesus. And his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul's going to describe it this way. He says, if anybody's in Christ, he's a brand new creature. The old passed away, the new's come. What Easter means, the end of the holy weekend from Good Friday where Christ dies on the cross to the moment he's raised, when they encounter the risen Christ, and, and I got to tell you, in my mind, that is an established fact of history. The scripture tells us that over 500 different people witnessed the resurrected Christ. Not just a couple of guys who made up a good story so they could get a book contract and come up with a couple million bucks. These are guys who went out and literally gave their lives proclaiming that Christ had stepped out of the grave alive, never to die again. And and he's saying as a result of Easter morning, this power is unleashed in us where we're not only freed from sin, but we are now able to live a new life. We have in Christ the power to change. Easter, the message of redemption, is that you and I don't have to live shackled to our past, but we can be set loose by the grace of God to be new people in the future. I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. Now, I look out and I see a lot of familiar faces. There's some new faces. We're glad you're here today. I see a lot of familiar faces. And, and honestly, many of us would say, you know, this whole change thing's pretty hard. You know, I, we talk about Christ dying on the cross, death to sin, all that kind of stuff, and this resurrection power that now is available to us, but we just find change to be really hard, right? Am I the only one? I mean, sometimes changing is just really hard. You know, where we begin to just root out ways of thinking about ourselves, way about thinking about others, thinking about life, thinking about how we react to circumstances. Change is difficult sometimes for us. And, and I want to offer to you, I can't give you all, I want to offer to you from this text and from what, we, what we're talking about today, I want to offer you just a couple of reasons why you and I find change so hard. I'm absolutely convinced that the resurrection of Christ means that you and I really are empowered to be new creatures. We really can be different. We can change, and we should be changing. Why is it that you and I struggle, if you will, to change? I want to give you just a couple. I just want to give you two points. But I'll confess up front to you I'm going to cheat because my first point has two subpoints, so it's really three point, two points, but I'm going to call it one point because you'll think it's a shorter sermon, and that might mean you want to come back next time, right? I want to give you two reasons why you and I struggle to experience this life-changing power that's available to us to change us through faith in Jesus Christ. First one is that you and I are chronic underestimators. You probably never heard that point in a sermon before if you've been around. A chronic underestimators. And here's what I mean by this. You and I, we, we chronically underestimate two things. 
we, we, we chronically underestimate the consequences and the power of sin. You know, if you look through this text, it's only 11 verses we just read. You know how many times the word sin is used? Seven times. Seven times in 11 verses. Now, Paul's talking about the new life, but he's talking about how sin has this potential to keep pulling us back into itself. Sin has this incredible power. Our ability just to say, you know what, I'm just going to do, do Monday by myself. I'll think about God on Wednesday maybe, maybe Thursday. I'm just, it just has this incredible power to keep pulling us back and holding on to us. And, and what many of us get to, we, we, we love this idea that when those of us who have died were freed from sin. And so, and so we think we get to a place, instead of sin leading us around, we think we have the power to lead sin around. You know, we can just kind of play with it a little bit. We can manage it. We can control it, that kind of stuff. And it's really not going to hurt us. You know, if I drink a little bit too much on occasion, what's the big deal? Nobody gets hurt. So, you know, I lie a few times to my bosses or to my family or whatever just so I can keep the conflicts a little lower. What, 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 what's the harm in that, you know? You know, I, I know I get grumpy and tired of time, and I'm rude, and I say things that I shouldn't or whatever, but everybody, you know, I use a little foul language and swear when I go, man, what's the big deal? None of that really matters, right? It's not really sin in any real big way, and we think we can just lead it around. But sin is always a wild animal that you and I can never completely tame, and it will indeed cost us. Some of you remember there used to be a, a very famous act in Las Vegas, Siegfried and Roy, right? They were magicians, and as a part of their show, they used lions and tigers. It became a really popular show, more, so much so that there were over 280 different guys who worked as a part of the show. It was such a big production, such a big deal, and it made so much money, they could actually support almost 300 employees just to put on this show over and over and over again. But on October 3rd, 2013, in the midst of their act, this tamed tiger clamped its jaws down on Roy Horn and wouldn't let go. Just bit him right on the neck, blood spewing everywhere. He literally lost almost all of his blood. They, they eventually got the tiger off of him, ran him to the hospital. And even to this day, he's in the process of rehabbing from that experience. Sometimes we think we got it tamed, we got to push down, and, just, and, and, and i got to tell you, we, we never tame sin. We underestimate the power of sin to be destructive in our lives. Those little white lies, you know, real big deals, when you get in a moment when you really need people to believe you, it gets a little harder. You, get, you drink a little too much that one time, what's the big deal? But you say or do something, and you live with the consequences forever. Yeah, I know I'm a little rude, rough with my family, et cetera, you know, or with my boss or whatever, and you lose your job or your spouse says to you, I just, I just don't like you anymore. I don't want to be married to you anymore. We, we never completely control the power of sin. And one of the things that holds us back in experiencing the, the, the really the, I think, the, the empowering gift of God to change is that you and I underestimate the power and the cost of sin in our lives. We think we can lead it around on a leash because it no longer leads us around on a leash. And yet sometimes that tiger just, just, just attacks us and 
takes us down and leaves us rehabbing for years and years. Here, here's, here's the other thing that we chronically underestimate. Not only do we chronically underestimate the cost and the power of sin, but you and I chronically underestimate the value of living the new life that God has given us in Jesus Christ. We, we just don't appreciate what it is that God has given to us to live a new life in Jesus Christ. He, he, you know, anybody being Christ is a new creature. We, can, we have this power that so we can live this new life. I got to tell you, most of us, it's like, you know, I'm not sure that's so exciting to me. Is that just a bunch of church meetings and I got to give money and et cetera? And we just undervalue what it is that God's trying to give to us. God is trying to give us this wonderful gift that every night that we lay our head on the pillow, we know that our life that day counted for something. That we're right for him for all eternity. That we have this tremendous peace and contentment with inside of us. There's nothing that we need to be ashamed of. There's nothing that we need to do. God is trying to give us this great gift. And we just chronically underestimate the value of this new life that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And you put those two things together, and we have very little motivation for change. And change doesn't happen. I used to, when I was doing denominational work, I used to, meet with pastors quite frequently, and on occasion, you, you know, you'd, you'd meet with a pastor, and you'd be talking, and say, you know, boy, my church, you know, we used to run a couple hundred people, and now we're running like 125, and I know we need to do something different, what should I be doing, and that kind of stuff, and, you know, how, how do we need to change, and, and the, always the very first question I asked them was this, it says, do your people know they need to change, and if they said no, I said, boy, God bless you because they're going to fight you every single way. They're going to fight you every step along the way. Because I tell you what, when we, when we don't understand that we need to change, that there's actually something better at the far end, change is really tough. When you and I underestimate the cost and the pow power of sin in our lives and we underestimate the value of what God's trying to give us in Jesus Christ, you and I are going to tread water. And the power of God's not going to flow through us. Here's the, my second point. See, the first one was one point, right? A few minutes ago, Steve was reading that account of the very first Easter morning. The women get to the tomb. The, to the stone's already been moved. They don't know what to do. And, it, it, and all of a sudden, they're met by two guys who are just in blazing white. Clearly, the Scripture's trying to describe they met two angels. And the angels asked them this question. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? I think the Second reason why you and I really struggle to see the power of God to create change in our lives so we can become the people that he's always wanted us to be, the people that if we really knew what's best that we would want to become, the reason why you and I really struggle with all of that is because we're seeking God in the wrong ways. We're seeking the living among the dead. Somehow or another, we, 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 we pick up this book and we think it's like a manual. You know, if I can just master it, I'll be able to use, you know, if I, can, if I can just master the manual that comes with my cell phone, I'll know how to use it all right, right? You know, if, if I can just master all the pieces and go out and then play. This book is not designed to be like a manual. This isn't go, like going back and trying to, you know, 
comb through all the writings of Winston Churchill so you can figure out the best leadership principles. Or It's not like trying to go through all the different musical writings of Beethoven or Mozart so you can figure out the best way to be a musician. It's not studying the military tactics of Alexander the Great somehow or another so you can become a great. It's not about mastering a set of ideas and truths and just going out and trying to live it for ourselves. As Andy put it, it's about entering into a relationship with a living God. Now, this is what most of us would say. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to enter into a relationship with a living God. I mean, I can't meet him at the coffee shop. I can't have breakfast with him. We can't just hang out together watching TV or whatever. How is it that I have a relationship? And we don't know how to do that. And listen, let me just say this with all the love that I can and with, with, with all of the learnings of all my years in seminary and all the stuff I read, it's, duh. I mean, if we could figure out how to have a, living, a relationship with the living God on our own, why would the Savior need to come in the first place? Why, why would the Savior need to come? If you and I could figure this out on our own, how to do it, why, would you, why did Jesus need to climb out of heaven, grow up as a little kid in a poor home in Nazareth, put up with 40 days of temptation in the wilderness? What, what, to all around, what, what, why did he have to do any of that stuff if you and I could figure it out on our own? And the answer is, we can't. And that's why we need to ask the Father, a relationship with him. We need to seek a relationship with the Father so he can find us. It's why we need to knock on the door so he can open it. In case you didn't know, that comes from the scripture. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. You and I need to ask God to show us how to have a relationship for him. Ask him to forgive us of our sins, which is what the cross is all about. We need to ask him to enter into our lives by faith, which is what the resurrection is all about. And then ask him to show us how to live in a relationship with on a daily basis so that each one of us can have that moment like doubting Thomas who said, I'm not going to believe he's out of the grave until I see him myself. And when Jesus showed up and he finally met him and he said, here, go ahead, stick your, stick your fingers in the holes of my hand. Go ahead, stick your fist in the the side, in the hole in my side, his response was, my God, my Lord and my God. We just need to ask God for that moment of awakening so that we can experience the power to change. My invitation to you this morning on this Easter 2015 is don't settle. Don't settle. Embrace the motivation to change, because you can change for the better. You can change for eternity, because Christ has risen. Let's pray together. God, in these moments, we ask that we might receive. God, in these moments we knock and we invite you to step in and to speak. God, in these moments we seek. As you honor our prayers, may we find. 
may we meet the living one and have that life-changing, ongoing, changing moment of saying, my Lord and my God, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For some of you, this spiritual journey is something that's kind of fresh and new to you. You really don't know what to do. We, we, we won, first of all, we, we'd just love to help, you take, help take some next steps and as out back in our welcome area where we have the free gift for you and you'll see Steve with his beautiful tie out there and that kind of stuff. You, there, there are some Bibles there. They're special Bibles. We buy them specially because in the front there are some suggested reading guides that will literally just read, walk you through the Bible about who is God, who is Jesus, what does it mean to be saved, what does sin do to us, how does faith change us, what about evil, what about heaven, and what about hell. There's some great reading guides. If that's something that you could use, we'd love for you to swing by, pick one up, our gift to you. Thanks for being here. Let's stand and sing together. We'll collect our offering, and we'll be off to anything but pizza. Let's stand and sing together.